much excitement about a nerve called the vagus nerve on social media and in scientific quarters. It's one of 12 cranial nerves and it's the longest. It runs from the brain stem to the colon and it's part of the autonomic system, unconscious functions like breathing and heart rate and digestion. And now, vagus nerve stimulation promises a breakthrough in reducing inflammation. Kevin Tracy is a professor of molecular medicine and neurosurgery at the Feinstein's Institute. And he's focused on the molecular basis of inflammation and how neurons can control the immune system. And his work is part of a developing field of medicine known as bioelectronic medicine that some say has the potential to transform how a variety of conditions are treated. So I asked him what the link is between the immune system and inflammation. So it turns out that inflammation is a, is a product of the activation of white blood cells. So white blood cells are part of the immune system. And if white blood cells encounter an injury, like a cut on your skin or a, or a trauma to your, to your soft tissues, or if white blood cells encounter uh, a bacteria or a virus or during an infection, either an injury or an infection can, can activate white blood cells. It revs them up. And when white blood cells get activated or revved up or turned on, they start producing molecules that actually cause inflammation. Inflammation is redness, it's pain, it's swelling, it's the loss of function that occurs when you have an injury or an infection that we've all experienced. And what my colleagues and I discovered is that signals from the brain traveling down the vagus nerve through, through your neck and into the organs of your body those signals can actually turn off the white blood cells and stop the inflammation. That's the link. Is there any way that inflammation can be seen as part of the healing process? You know, you get a fever in order to um, get rid of the, the bugs. 100%. Inflammation is a critical part of healing. So, you know, Mae West supposedly said too much of a good thing is wonderful, but... But actually, as we all know, too much of a good thing may not be wonderful. Too much water can be dangerous. Too much sugar can be dangerous. And similarly, too much inflammation is dangerous. The right of a, amount of inflammation, the proper balance of inflammation, is critically important to life, to health. The right amount of inflammation facilitates clearing of the infection in the case of, of, of bacteria and viruses, and the right amount of inflammation during an injury is critically important in, in healing the injury. So, so it comes down to balance and control. And what my colleagues and I discovered is that the signals that help balance and control inflammation are transmitted in the vagus nerve. How did you discover that? This was in the late 90s, right? Yeah, in the late 90s, we discovered this by accident or serendipity, depending on your point of view. 
we were studying the effects of a molecule that was that we had invented actually to turn off inflammation. And we learned a great deal about this anti-inflammatory molecule, which turned off the production of, of the activation of white blood cells. But when we put this molecule in the brain of, of animals that, that had a stroke, uh, we were looking for the drug in the brain to stop the inflammation around this stroke and to uh, improve the outcome from the stroke. And it did that. We expected that. What we didn't expect is that putting vanishingly small amounts of this drug into the brain of, of animals with a stroke turned off inflammation in the body of the animals. And this was a puzzle. This, was, this made no sense based on what we knew at the time. And so we worked on this for many, many months. How, how could a small amount of a drug in the brain turn off inflammation in the body? And, and we hit upon the idea of cutting the vagus nerve because we thought maybe the signals were traveling down the vagus nerve. And when we, when we cut the vagus nerves in these animals, now the drug in the brain no longer controlled inflammation in the body. And so we had discovered that the signals in the vagus nerve were like the brakes on your car, slowing down inflammation. And if we cut the brakes, if we cut the vagus nerve, inflammation raced out of control. So this was surprising because the, the blood-brain barrier regulates the movement of molecules into the brain. Are you saying that those, the molecules traveled down the vagus nerve? No, that's, the, that's exactly what we did next. So what, what we did next is we wondered what was the nature of the signal traveling down the vagus nerve. And we reasoned that because the vagus nerve is a nerve, that it was sending electrical signals from the brain down the vagus nerve to the body. And so what we did next is we used a electrical nerve stimulator to stimulate the vagus nerves of animals. And when we did that, we discovered that electrically activating the vagus nerve turned off inflammation in the body. And that's a paper that we published in Nature in the early 2000s. And that really started this whole field of, of bioelectronic medicine. And this is what you called the inflammatory reflex, is it? As a neurosurgeon, I knew that nerves don't operate of, of their own accord, if you will. Mm. Um, the, the, way the, the way the nervous system works is that the sensory nerves, afferent or, or, or afferent or sensory nerves, react to changes in the environment, in the internal environment um, or the external environment. The external environment would be responsive to your senses, sound, light, taste. The internal environment activates nerves that, that, that you're not aware of, but are activated from changes in blood pressure and heart rate and oxygen content in your blood. These sensory signals are constantly being fed into the into the spinal cord and in the brainstem. Once these signals arrive in the brainstem or the spinal cord, they activate motor signals that return to the organ or to the body to maintain balance or homeostasis. And so having discovered, if you will, by serendipity, that electrical signals in the vagus nerve turn off inflammation, we reasoned that the signal to turn on the off switch must be inflammation. And in fact, we've since proved that 
hypothesis because inflammation turns on sensory or afferent signals in the vagus nerve, which in turn activate the motor signals that turn off inflammation. And that's what we call the inflammatory reflex of the vagus nerve. So in 2016, you and your colleagues published the results of a study of patients with rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease, um, and the immunosuppressive drugs hadn't helped them. What did you do? Well, in uh, 1998, I wrote on the back of a napkin the idea that if, if the inflammatory reflex of the vagus nerve can turn off inflammation and block a, a cytokine, a white blood cell protein made by macrophages and other cells called TNF, which is a cytokine, I reasoned that it should be possible to use electric, electrically activated devices, vagus nerve stimulators, to treat rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease. And the reason that, that I, I proposed that, that uh, invention is because I knew in the 1990s that drugs to treat rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease act by blocking TNF and other cytokines like IL-1 and IL-6, which we learned later. And so as, as, as for 20 years, um, we proposed using vagus nerve stimulators in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And in 2016, we, we published those results. Now, now that clinical trial was, was led by and sponsored by a company called Setpoint Medical that I, that I co-founded. And the, and the clinical principal investigator and senior author on that paper was a rheumatologist from Amsterdam named Paul Peter Tack. And the first author, Frieda Koopman, was his student. And uh, now she's a full professor, of course. And so those results were game-changing. Those results were first to show that you could apply a vagus nerve stimulator to patients with a, a severe autoimmune condition called rheumatoid arthritis and that they could benefit clinically, have decreased pain and swelling in their, in their joints and limbs uh, using electrons as the primary drug. What's the advantage over drugs? I mean, I understand that drugs for those kind of diseases are immunosuppressant, and so they have the side effects mean that they leave people vulnerable to other diseases. Why doesn't stimulation of the vagus nerve, which blocks that... TNF production is essentially also immunosuppressant. Why doesn't it have the same disadvantage? Because the vagus nerve control of inflammation doesn't immunosuppress. And there's, there's a couple of things we understand about that. So first of all, the vagus nerve inflammatory reflex is evolutionarily ancient. It dates back to simple mammals like mice and even um, other mammals like pigs and humans. And so the fact that evolution preserved this reflex is because it is a, a, a quote unquote natural or inherent property of the nervous system and the immune system. Evolution doesn't retain things that are bad for you unless they are outweighed by significant advantages. So that's a, that's a statement of fact is that we have not observed immunosuppression in either the clinical trials that we've done so far or in the uh, animal experiments that we've done so far. And now this is going back over many, many years. The second thing we know is that vagus nerve stimulators have been implanted in at least 125,000 humans. 
to treat epilepsy and other conditions. And in none of those uh, conditions has immunosuppression been revealed to be a problem. So we have a 30-year clinical experience with vagus nerve stimulation that's been studied for its side, side effects and complications, and it's proven to be quite safe. So when you ask about the difference between a vagus nerve stimulator for treating a chronic inflammatory condition versus a biologic agent that targets a cytokine, you're looking at cost differentials from between, say, for example, $50,000 perhaps for, the, for surgery and for a device, maybe 100000 once versus $100,000 every year for the rest of your life. And you're looking at an immunosuppressive drug that has a black box warning, which means potentially the side effects are very serious and possibly even uh, can be fatal, versus a 30-year clinical experience with vagus nerve stimulation where there's no black box warning. So frankly, in patients I've spoken to about this very point, patients today are moving towards the idea that, that if a biologic helps them and they can afford it without bankruptcy, great. But if, they, if the biologic doesn't help them and it only seems to help about half of the patients, then, then possibly the next step in it someday after all the regulatory approvals are in place, someday it may be that they go to having a device implanted once for life. And that's, that's, those are the kinds of questions that we're, that we're studying and trying to understand now. I'm talking to Professor Kevin Tracy about his work on the vagus nerve. I've just seen a new scientist article, and the headline is, Unraveling the Secrets of the Vagus Nerve Will Revolutionize Medicine. Would you agree with that? I would, actually. The reason is is that we are just at the very beginning now of a, of a new field of, of harnessing the power of computer chips and rechargeable batteries to target specific signaling pathways in the vagus nerve that potentially will disrupt the use of drugs that are currently... Um, in the realm of a, of a third of the global pharmaceutical industry. So, so drugs to treat inflammation and, and biologics to target cytokines is an enormous market. And those drugs are far from perfect. Vagus nerve stimulation, should it prove to be effective in larger clinical trials and larger randomized trials, it has the potential to be very, very disruptive. And frankly, patients that I've talked to would rather have a device than have to inject themselves with invasive drugs uh, at an extremely high cost and extremely high risk for the rest of their life. So we don't know uh, everything yet. This is early. There are ongoing clinical trials in the U.S. and elsewhere that will be very revealing and very important to understanding this. But I do agree it has the potential to be extremely disruptive to the benefit of patients, which is what I, of course, care about. I mean, some of the conditions that the vagus nerve is said to be able to influence are, I mean, it's a myriad list, right? Obesity, depression, uh, you've mentioned epilepsy, all sorts of autoimmune diseases, addiction. What, how do you, how do you know which bit of the, which bit of the nerve affects which bit of the body, or is that not a relevant question? 
It's a very relevant question that hundreds of people in dozens of laboratories and companies are working on as we speak. Ah. It's extremely relevant. So when I see those lists of myriad conditions, the first thing I do is break break the list down into bite-sized pieces by cutting it in half. Half of the list is attributable to uh, potentially to um, mechanisms related to inflammation. And the other half of the list, we don't know the mechanisms for why vagus nerve stimulation appears to have some effect. And in this, in, in this modern era of, of science and medicine, it's critically important that we focus on, on unraveling molecular and neuroscientific and anatomic mechanisms to the extent that we possibly can, because from understanding the mechanisms by which vagus nerve uh, stimulation modulates the disease, we can apply it more specifically to patients and we can perfect it and we can, and we can do it uh, optimally. When you don't know the mechanism by which the vagus nerve stimulation is potentially conferring benefit, and a good example of that might be depression or even epilepsy, despite the fact that it's been put in 125,000 people, we don't know the mechanism for why vagus nerve stimulation confers benefit in about half of the patients that it's used to treat epilepsy, drug-resistant epilepsy. Well, if you don't know the mechanism, you don't know why it only works in half the patients, and we don't. On the other hand, with inflammation, we have been able to take this very complex vagus nerve. There's actually 80,000 fibers in the vagus nerve on each side of your body. So you have 160,000 vagus nerve fibers. And we've been able to trace the signals that control inflammation down to the spleen. And we estimate it's a few hundred to a few thousand of those fibers. And we're able to activate that small number of fibers because we use a very small amount of current. And so we're not activating all 160,000 fibers. So we're beginning to get a level of precision to treat inflammation because we understand the mechanism. And so that's, that's, really the, that's really the step that we're in now is breaking down the diseases or the clinical syndromes into those in which we know the mechanism, those in which we don't know the mechanism, and in developing methods to study those mechanisms. That's the critical step. It's about doing more science and doing clinical trials when we know the mechanism. In the meantime, you can go on TikTok and find vagus nerve hacks. You can buy um, transcutaneous stimulators to DIY a better vagus nerve. Can't do any harm, right? Or can it? It can. No, I, I, I have to say that there's a lot of information out there that is potentially misleading, and some of it's potentially dangerous. And people seeking for self-care, self-medical care, or self-help should check with their physicians about what, what's appropriate and what's safe for them. It's, it comes back to, to what we were just talking about, which is where do we understand the mechanism? Where does the evidence support pursuing either this experimental path or this clinical development path? And where do we not know enough about even the basic physiology of breath holding or taking a cold shower or meditating to to understand what the role of the vagus nerve is in the potential intervention? So this is my plea that people not believe everything they read and that they talk to their physician before running after this, that, or the other vagus nerve 
either self-help or intervention. Now, some of it may be based in very good science, and but some of it is probably not. And sorting through that is really the job of investigators, scientists, and, and physicians now who are working the problem. There's a lot of people interested in this, and we are interested in finding out the answers, but we don't have all the answers yet. There's a procedure in which all or part of the vagus nerve is removed. Why would you do that? And what are the effects of doing that? There's no procedure for removing all of the vagus nerve. Many years ago, there were procedures developed to cut branches of the vagus nerve that project to the stomach because those branches are responsible for controlling the production of gastric acid. And so it was used as a treatment for ulcer surgery. But it's, it's fallen by the wayside with the realization that ulcers are actually not caused by th- those branches of the vagus nerve. Ulcers are actually caused by infection from a, from a bacteria, and they oftentimes can be treated with antibiotics. So it's actually interesting. If, if, you, if you cut both vagus nerves in the neck, it's potentially fatal. And if you cut the branches of the vagus nerve that go to the voice box, you can no longer speak. So... There's no, there's no therapeutic use of cutting the vagus nerve anymore. Um, you mentioned the cold water business, which is quite in vogue. Wim Hof, uh, the Iceman, uh, reckons that he's controlling inflammation. And you've had some dealing with him, have you not? What do you say? So Wim Hof is a, uh, a, a proponent of of a breath-holding exercise and uh, of uh, cold water submersion and of meditation. And the physiology of uh, cold water exposure or cold exposure ultimately leads to slowing the heart rate. And slowing the heart rate is accomplished in physiological mechanisms by increasing signals through the vagus nerve. But cold water submersion and breath-holding can also activate other nerves besides the vagus nerve. And those nerves are associated with the fight or flight response. And so when you do severe cold water exposure and or severe breath holding, as Wim Hof uh, does, you activate the vagus nerve, but you also activate the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight nervous system. The vagus nerve is parasympathetic. So it's a complex series of physiological events, and they have both been implicated in changing inflammation. But adrenaline, if, if you're suggesting that adrenaline would be produced under those circumstances, would that not increase inflammation? It, it's complicated. Um, it, it depends. Ah. So there are, there are conditions in animals and humans where adrenaline or norepinephrine and epinephrine or noradrenaline where these fight-or-flight molecules can, in fact, stimulate inflammation, and there's other conditions in which those molecules can inhibit inflammation. And there's, there's different receptors called alpha and beta that appear to have different signals. Uh, they both, the alpha and beta family of receptors, both respond or are activated by adrenaline and noradrenaline, but the alpha receptors tend to increase inflammation and the beta receptors tend to decrease inflammation. So how it's all working in a given individual at a given time with a given amount of temperature change or a given amount of breath holding is not known. What is known is that 
when Wim Hof uh, did uh, his breath-holding exercises, he did them first for us way back in the mid-2000s, 2007, 2010, something like that, that we did observe that by simply uh, doing his breathing exercises, he was able to uh, suppress the amount of inflammation in his bloodstream. Uh, he then went and worked with Peter Pickers in Amsterdam, and they published their findings in uh, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that his breath-holding method modulates and decreases inflammation. And I find that very, very interesting and very intriguing. I do know that we don't completely understand it. Um, it you know, there's evidence that the sympathetic nervous system is activated by by these methods, and it's possible that that is the means by which or the mechanism by which the physiological responses inhibit inflammation. But it's also possible that the vagus nerve is being activated in those conditions, and we just don't see it. So we don't know. It's fascinating to me. It warrants further study, and I can't recommend breath holding or ice baths for everybody because in some conditions, those things can be dangerous, and patients really should check with their physicians first. Yeah. I mean, I know you say check with the physician is always good advice, but you know, with all due respect, the average doctor won't know very much about the vagus nerve, I'd hazard a guess. And so, you know, they may well be inclined to just say, keep taking the pills. I, I don't know. Uh, I can't speak to what the average doctor knows or doesn't know. I, I do know that the interest in the vagus nerve and in basic physiology around these questions is of tremendous interest to a lot of researchers and to a lot of uh, individuals developing um, therapeutic strategies. The, the, the company that that I co-founded, uh, Setpoint Medical in, in the United States, is nearing, hopefully nearing completion of a very large clinical study implanting a vagus nerve stimulator in patients with severe rheumatoid arthritis. If the results of, the, of, of that study with nearly 250 people uh, are positive, as I hope it will be, I think this will give the opportunity for many, many more patients someday to have a vagus nerve stimulator implanted. And, th- and that will allow us to learn a lot more uh, in, a, in a way that's, that's, uh, that's going to be very important to informing us whether this idea can be tested in other conditions like Crohn's disease, potentially multiple sclerosis, a potentially psoriatic arthritis. The list goes on and on because inflammation is so important to these conditions. And do you think that eventually you will know what all of those 160,000 fibers, 80,000 fibers on each side do? Yes, I do. There are very, very powerful uh, methods and techniques now that, um, starting in mice, allow you to trace the the identity and the activity of, ind- of every one of those individual fibers. They can be genetically tagged for identification, and then they can be genetically labeled or enhanced so that they are activatable by uh, optogenetic methods. These are methods where uh, the light-sensitive channels from algae or other species are harvested and then expressed uh, directly in individual nerve fibers of mice. And so it's possible then to shine a laser light on the on the vagus nerve or on the origin of the vagus nerve in the brain of these mice and identify the exact function of an individual nerve fiber. And uh, these are early days. Um, as I said before, we've already shown that 
a few hundred or a few thousand fibers that transmit acetylcholine from the brainstem of a mouse under optogenetic control, that these very specific fibers specifically control signals in the splenic nerve, which is the nerve that goes into the spleen, and those signals turn off inflammation. And what's amazing about that is that every textbook you pick up says that the vagus nerve is parasympathetic and the splenic nerve is sympathetic and they're not supposed to interact, but we prove they do. This is a new, and this is a new world that we're pursuing and it's going to have direct implications for better clinical therapies for patients someday. Not, not 100 years from now, but longer than tomorrow, but not 100 years from now. In the coming years, you're going to see more and more of these therapies used in the clinic, is my, my firm belief. Speaking on behalf of the well but anxious, how do you know if your vagus nerve is in good nick? You know, how do you know what your vagal tone is? Well, vagal tone is a loaded, dangerous word that, that again, is promulgated a lot in, uh, in social media. And I don't, I don't use that word because I don't know what it means. It's, it's, it has psychological and philosophical as well as physiological implications. Let me, let me turn your question back around and say, what is it we can be sure of that we can measure that the vagus nerve is doing in humans? And that one thing is slowing heartbeat. So if your heartbeat is slow, that's a very good sign that you have very good vagus nerve activity. That's, that's probably a, a, as close as you get to a gold standard. And if you think about that for a minute, um, conditions of, of health, um, people who are very fit, people who exercise regularly uh, and, and, and eat healthy diets, they tend to have slower heartbeats than, or pulses than, than, than people who uh, are less fit and don't exercise. And so that's probably a good place to start is to, is to optimize your lifestyle through diet and exercise and getting enough rest to keep your heart rate nice and slow. That's a sign that, you've, that you're taking care of your vagus nerve. At the other extreme, we saw during COVID that some COVID patients developed infections in their vagus nerve that, were, that could be visualized by MRI and by ultrasound. And there's, there's reasonable evidence. It's, not, it's, not, it's still being studied. It's not final yet, but there's reasonably decent evidence suggesting that damage to the vagus nerve in some patients underlies the, the long COVID or the long-haul COVID syndrome. And so there's tremendous interest in your question, and we don't have all the answers. And that was Professor Kevin Tracy who's a professor of molecular medicine and neurosurgery at the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research in Manhasset, New York.